and welcome to Alexander Disease Research Update for AXDRU. I'm Albie Messing, and this is episode number one, the first of which I hope will be a regular series of discussions about newly published results from the research literature. With me today is my long-term collaborator on GFAP and Alexander Disease, Michael Brenner, and our topic will be a paper by Hunt et al. entitled, Does Genetic Anticipation Occur? in Familial Alexander Disease, which was published, or which is in press in the journal Neurogenetics. Uh, but since this is the first episode, for those of you who don't know me, I should introduce myself. I got my training in experimental neuropathology at the University of Pennsylvania, and then for 30 plus years taught, ran a lab, and for several, several years ran a large research center on intellectual and developmental disabilities at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Along with Mike Brenner, I began working on Alexander disease around 1995, and it's been the sole focus of my lab since 2000. Mike, do you wanna say a few words about yourself? Sure, so I trained in biochemistry and that was at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, I then trans transition to molecular genetics and studying the controls of gene activity. Uh, for the past 30 years, our gene of interest has been the one encoding GFAP, glial fibrillary acidic protein. And except for the initial three years, this has been in a collaboration with, with Alvi. It was in the course of the study of GFAP that we discovered that mutations in the GFAP gene are responsible for most cases of Alexander disease. Thank you. So, and thank you for joining me today on this first podcast. So I want to make another general point about the goals of these podcasts before we dive into the paper itself. Looking forward, I view these, this as a good opportunity to try and answer questions about Alexander disease. So if you wish, please email your questions to me and we'll try to address them in future episodes. I'm not a physician, however, so getting answers may have to wait until we have the appropriate person on as a guest. The email address for questions is A-M-E-S-S-I-N-G, that's just my first initial and last name, at WISC.edu. Now, let's turn our attention to the main topic for today, the paper by Hunt et al., which asks whether genetic anticipation occurs in Alexander disease. And I wanna start by just offering a brief definition of anticipation, which is a worsening of the phenotype in progressive generations. So uh, in this paper, um, the authors describe a mother-daughter pair the mother is 71 years old when she pre presents to the clinic with a four-year history of weakness um, and recent dysphagia. At presentation, she was wheelchair-dependent. Um, on examination, she had extreme weight loss, prominent palmomental reflexes. I honestly don't know what those are. Uh, spastic dysarthric speech. Uh, tone was increased in all limbs and there was a pyramidal pattern of weakness. 
uh, brain MRI demonstrated cervical medullary atrophy, suggesting a diagnosis of adult onset Alexander disease. Her daughter presented to the neurology department at age 45 with an eight month history of stiffness in all four limbs and poor balance. Um, she had poorly responsive pupils, prominent jaw jerk and slight dysarthria, abnormal speech, slow tongue movements, marked spasticity in all limbs with brief, brisk reflexes um, and normal strength except for uh, one particular muscle, dorsal interosseous muscle. There were no lower motor neuron features, no cerebellar signs, and sensory exam was normal. MRI scans of her brain were done and were reported as normal. So this is at the age of 45. Her condition progressively deteriorated so that over the course of six years, she um, eventually had to retire from work um, and then she was lost uh, to follow up. So together, this, this mother-daughter pair suggested to the authors that, uh, that there could be, uh, there, was, there was a worsening in the phenotype in the daughter and that this could one explanation for this could be genetic anticipation. I should say that um, DNA analysis of the mother revealed a mutation or a variant in GFAP, uh, which was asparagine 386 to serine. So can I break in? Please do, sure. So I think the DNA analysis was done. So the daughter they said was lost to um, examination, but then, then reappeared um, four or five years later. Right. Um, and I think it was a daughter's DNA that was analyzed, not the mom's. Um, and an important point for this paper is the daughter was seen and diagnosed before the mother. And that's one of the things that led them to think about this um, genetic anticipation. Right, so then what they do is conduct a literature search and try to capture all examples of parent-child uh, pairs with a diagnosis of Alexander disease and ask the question of whether the phenotype is worse in the child than in the parent. Um, or occurred their, earlier. Their, their sole uh, criterion is age of onset. Um, so they do a fairly extensive um, literature review uh, which is presented in table one. I honestly could not figure out why they ordered um, all of the patients in table one the way they did, um, because it was somewhat laborious going through to figure out um, which one was which. It's not 
done by the variant in the sequence from amino terminal to C terminal. It's not done by chronology of publication. Um, it, it doesn't seem to have any real rhyme or reason to it, but it's fairly comprehensive. Um, nevertheless, it's not, it's not complete and it's not entirely accurate, which becomes a problem later. Um, you know, I know for a fact that one of, they cite as one pair, um, a, uh, a pedigree that we published together in 2012 with the D417A variant. Um, but they omitted another family reported in the same paper, which, was, which had an S247P variant. Um, both of which are relevant for their argument if you, you know, if you follow their logic. But what do you think about the data in this paper and how reliable it is for judging differences between severity? Are you you're asking me? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I so the question I have is. There are two things. One is once a parent has been diagnosed, um, you'll be more likely to pick up an earlier age for offspring because you're looking for it. And often in Alexander disease, um, the initial symptoms are very general. They could be almost any kind of disease. They're not identified as Alexander disease usually for often for, for, for many years later. And so there's a question is for the parent, then what is the age of onset? And they often, I think, take it as once is when the definitive, more or less definitive diagnosis is made. But then you can look back in their clinical history and there were other things that maybe, you know, could have been interpreted as that five, 10, 15, 20 years earlier. Uh, but once a parent's been diagnosed and you look at the child, once they show any of these, you'll say that's a symptom. So I think there's a bias there and just how you interpret the data. Now, in, in their particular case, that's not an issue because the, the offspring, the daughter was diagnosed before the parent. What we don't know in these others is they do not give the information as to who was diagnosed first, but probably because they don't comment on it, maybe it was the parent. So you have the, then this bias that um, it's going to be earlier for the offspring simply because people are more are going to, to categorize what they see. First of all, they'll be looking more carefully. And first, when, the, when they do find something, they'll say that's the age of onset for Alexander disease. So I think this, that issue, which, which isn't addressed. And then I think there's another problem in that just the nature of doing research and reporting your data is you, you tend to report it when you find it rather than waiting five or 10 or 15 or 20 years to see what's gonna happen. So you report it when you get the initial results. So the initial results are you've got a parent and you've got younger kids and you're not waiting to see whether other kids might develop symptoms in five or 10 or 15 years. So the data you'd want there is, um, are there other kids who are known to have the mutation who are asymptomatic? And so right. that could really change um, the nature of your conclusions. And um, for ethical reasons, I guess often kids are not 
not genotype. They're not, they're not determined whether they have the mutation or not if they're not sick. Usually. Yeah, so that data may simply be unavailable. Um, but I think it's probably some cases it is available. And it's in here, it's, it's um, you know, we don't know how much, to what extent that is. Yeah. So those are two reservations about whether this is a real phenomenon or not. Yeah, I think there are several types of potential ascertainment bias. One, as you say, um, the, the parent is diagnosed first, and then so you're looking more carefully at the children and you pick something up at an earlier age. I think it also goes in the other direction, that the child is diagnosed first, and then you want to know, um, just, just in terms of the standard diagnostics, you want to know whether they it's a de novo mutation or whether they inherited from one of the parents. So then you start looking more closely at the parents, and then you pick up parent, parental uh, one of the parents being positive for the variant, and then you look at their phenotype more closely. And so, uh, so it, it's, there, there is a built-in bias there where the parent is obviously older than the child. And what we don't have, with one exception being um, our 2012 paper, we don't have any really multi-generational family. So I guess one thing I'd really like to wait and see is when, whether any of these children who now have a, a worse phenotype, when they have children, if they're able to, um, what happens in the next generation down the line. So the, the common way of thinking about anticipation is that it gets progressively worse with generations. But there are situations um, where, such as one that I know of, uh, specifically is in the fragile X field where you get, where the anticipation is due to expansion of a trinucleotide repeat, where you not only get expansions, but you get contractions. And these, these repeats are unstable basically. Um, so, so there's a, there's a big issue about whether this particular individual is so severely affected that they cannot have children in themselves or whether they're not so severely affected. And there are many on this list who um, clearly have, have, uh, are listed as having an adult onset at an age where they could have, had, could have had children. Now, do we need to explain what a trinuclear repeat is? Um, can you do that briefly? Well, I think, so, so people know that DNA has four different nucleotides, uh, ACTG. And a trinucleotide repeat is when three of these are just repeated one after the other. So like AUG, ATG, 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 many, many times. It might be 20 times, 30 times. And when this happens, um, when the DNA is being replicated, there's chances for it to sort of slip the replication machinery and, and fall back three or six or nine of these and thereby increase the number, total number in the DNA. Or it could jump forward and, and skip over some. So these trinucleotide repeats are unstable in terms of the number that they have in a row. So that's basically what goes on. So what they end up focusing on though is they have several possible explanations for anticipation. 
if it exists, which we haven't agreed that it exists. But if it exists, they have several um, hypotheses and they focus on one particular one, mosaicism. That the parent is mosaic, um, but the child is not. And so therefore the child has a higher burden of affected cells. Uh, and, and say what mosaic means? Well, mosaic means that you, are, you have a mixture of cells in your body of different genotypes. So some of the cells in the embryo and then in the person are going to be normal and some of them are going to have this mutation. So the mutation occurred after conception. Um, and this is considered unusual. In most cases, it's believed that the mutation occurs in one of the germlines of the parents, the egg or the sperm, so that every cell is affected. Um, but in the mosaic, system, mosaic case, it means the mutation occurred after conception. Right, but I think the, um, their idea is that it's the parent who's mosaic. And there are clearly examples where you are mosaic right. for both somatic cells and germ cells. So right. that's why so the we, parents yeah. would be mildly affected. Yeah. But the child then having received the, the variant through the sperm or, or ova uh, then is much more uniformly affected right. and severely. Right. Yeah. So the parent is the mosaic and the mutation. So the, the idea is that the mutation occurred in the parent after, after the parent was conceived. Yes. Right. So they cite the only example in the literature that exists for mosaicism, which is- um, In Alexander disease. Yeah. In Alexander disease, which again is one of our papers. Was that also 2012? Yes. I forget. We were, we were busy that year. Um, so, so what do you think about the, is there any evidence for mosaicism? Beyond it being a hypothesis, is there anything here that really supports mosaicism? So in our paper, we, we proved it because we showed that the mutation could be detected in buccal DNA, which is inside the mouth, the skin, which is um, in, in terms of development germinal layers, it's, it's ectoderm and brain is made from the ectodermal layer. So we could detect it in buccal DNA. We could not detect it at all in, in blood. So it was clearly a mosaic case. In this paper, there's no evidence whatsoever. Um, and I would say, I would argue that there's maybe evidence against it because for um, it to, the mutation has to be present in the brain, we think, to cause Alexander disease, which is ectodermal tissue. But then for the parent to pass it on to their kids, it has to be in their germ cells, which are not ectodermal. They're a different um, source. And so if it is mosaic, it's extremely widespread. So that's one thing. The other, another reason to be skeptical is, is let's say even if they are mosaic, for the methods that are used to detect that a person has a mutation, and this is use a PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, it would have to be present in probably at least half the cells um, in the tissue that they take to test. So it's already probably at least a majority of the cells. So I'm a little skeptical that going from that to 
100% um, would make that much difference. You no, know, it could theoretically, but it's, I think, a little improbable. Um, so that's another reason to be a little skeptical of this. Um, another reason is in four of the cases that they have in their table, they note that the parent had siblings who also had Alexander disease. So that means the parents couldn't have been mosaic. Um, and yet in those cases, they're claiming that the offspring had an earlier age of onset. Okay, but it's, right. the, but it's impossible that that could be explained by mosaicism. And, and you know, unfortunately they don't mention that in their paper, but I think that um, shows at least for those cases, it, it can't be the explanation. And then in terms of the data they present, it would have been very helpful to know what was the source of the tissue they used for, was that was used, not that they used, that was used in these cases to diagnose Alexander disease. Um, often it's a buccal swab, which would be, then allow you, I think, to hold the mosaicism um, possibility a little bit more strongly, but often it's blood which comes from another germinal layer that comes from uh, mesodermal origin. And again, we, in our case, we found no, no um, mutation in blood, but if they're finding mutation in blood, to me, that would strongly indicate this is not a mosaic person. And, and that data just was not presented. Yeah. So the bottom line is for multiple reasons, I think this is um, an extraordinarily unlikely possibility. Right. So ultimately, uh, it seems that mosaicism is a hypothesis. Um, and it's an interesting hypothesis, but none of the data here really um, supports it. You know, I would also say that for many of these pairs, the differences in age of onset, it isn't really that great. And, uh, and one idea I don't think they even offered uh, as a hypothesis is the impact of genetic modifiers. So, uh, you know, I think there's, there's, uh, there's certainly, it's nice to have this tabulation, even though there are some errors in it. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm glad people are interested in this, this problem and trying to pursue it. Um, now I think we're really going to wait for more hard data uh, to, to be able to evaluate it. Agreed. All right. <laughs> All right, so Mike, do you wanna say anything more about this or should I move on? I think you can move on. All right, so. Um, oh, well, I, let me just, one more thing, just, you know, technically in the table, um, they include a mutation uh, well, a, a change which it's not clear that it causes Alexander disease, um, the E223Q. Mm -hmm. They have another one that I have no idea what they're talking about, where it's M45 Roman numeral II. I don't know if that's a misprint or what, but I have no idea what that is. Oh, I think it's supposed to be M451I. Okay, that that was a possible guess, but I think there I don't think there's an MR51 in your table. And I think that actually may be longer than the um, protein. 
Yeah, I'd have to go back and check that that reference, right? You might check that. I, I didn't check the reference. All right. So the problem, so it just indicates, I mean, there's some, you might say a little sloppy with the table. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's not, not rigorously done. And and again, for the, for the audience, whenever people, whenever we see something like that, it makes us worry about the science um, when, it, when the attention is not played to the, these kinds of details. But that's just an aside. All right. That you um, want to cut out. <laughs> now you're going to challenge my editing capabilities. We'll see. <laughs> so that's all for today's episode of Alexander Disease Research Update. Um, you can send questions to my email address, amessing at wisc.edu, and we'll try our best to address them in a future podcast. I'll announce posting of the next episode through my regular email distribution list and write to me if you aren't on that list and want to be, um, as well as on the Facebook page. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Michael Brenner for joining in today. Our theme song was written by Charlie Allenson, special technical assistance from my daughters, Zoe and Rebecca. And of course, thank you to our donors, the Baron Riddle family and the Wanma Fund. I'm Albie Messing. See you next time.